and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name's Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week, going to guide you gently through another show as uh, the year moves on apace. And I've got a new, well, a relatively new uh, co-host for me this week because uh, Frank Washkook is uh, out for this week. So it's Ewan Larkin, who's a reporter on PR Week. Ewan, how are you doing? Doing very well, Steve. Happy to be back here. Yeah, good to have you on the show. And we've got a brilliant guest this week. It's Valerie de la Gaza, who's the CEO of Fenton. Valerie, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I am doing very well. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, calling in from L.A., where actually the weather is cooler than it is in New York City for once. So uh, we're enjoying a bit of a balmy week in New York before the winter starts, but that'll be with us shortly. So we're going to chat to Valerie, and then we'll talk about the health influence of 30 list, which Valerie's actually on, uh, spoiler alert. We'll talk about our PR Week Healthcare Conference and Awards 2023, which we launched this week, and a newsmaker interview that Ewan did with United Health Group's Jennifer Smoter. We'll chat about the midterm election results, which were last night as we're recording this. Interesting goings on there. We'll talk about the sad uh, death of Jack Porter, one of the founders of Porter Novelli, who passed away on Monday. And we'll talk about Brewdog, which did this anti-World Cup, uh, anti-sponsor campaign. Interesting, the World Cup just a couple of weeks away. But let's start with you, Valerie. Fenton, you're the CEO. You have been for about 18 months now, is that right? And you've been there for six years, but you've been overseeing some tremendous growth at the agency and and it's all about social good at Fenton. So give us a bit of a top line on how you've approached that over the last couple of years as CEO. Well, thank you so much. And yes, it's been um, an honor and a privilege uh, to be the CEO for Fenton. During that period, a period of that we call the Renaissance, a, a period of tremendous growth, we have uh, the, as I, as I said, the honor and the privilege to work with clients who are really change makers in society, philanthropy, nonprofits, advocates who are working on some of the most consequential issues of our time, including human rights, racial justice, climate change, basically, you know, really, really uh, important issues that are going to affect us now, not only now, but generations. It's our 40th anniversary which is uh, just mind-blowing that we've been around for so long. And just really over the last two years, I think what we've experienced, as you mentioned, the the type of growth has been really around these issues. Uh, A lot of it has had to do with, uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, I have to say the the pandemic, its impact. We've helped clients navigate various situations as it relates to the pandemic. We've done actually some outreach work in LA County and, um, and St. Louis counties as it relates to education and the vaccine. And then we worked with clients basically on helping to protect our democracy, in which I know there's a lot to unpack there. There is. We could do a few, a series of shows on that one. And we'll chat about that a bit later when we get to the midterm segment. But um, yeah, you've, um, we've been talking a lot about diversity in the agency sector over the past few months. And you, you, Fenton is genuinely diverse as an agency. So tell us a bit about that and how you've managed to achieve something that, frankly, a lot of other firms haven't. You're obviously a Latina leading a firm and you've infused diversity throughout the, the agency. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. We believe that diversity and inclusion are an imperative a must-have in order for our business to be effective. 
our clients work, you know, it squarely impacts diverse communities of, and, and, and people of all backgrounds. And we believe that we would be remiss if not, ir- frankly, irresponsible if our staff did not uh, reflect the reality of our, of our clients and the people that they serve. Uh, in fact, 55% of our entire agency talent pool identifies people of color. 75% identify as women. We know that we are most definitely as comms uh, in a very female-based uh, 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 industry. But nevertheless, we do have 75% uh, uh, folks that identify as women. But perhaps what's most notable for us and that we are really proud of is that our firm's diversity actually increases with seniority. 62% of our vice presidents and above are people of color. Uh, and that's very meaningful for us because what it, that does is it allows people who come in to really see that there is no ceiling, that in fact, if you are uh, a person of color like myself, uh, that there is a trajectory for you. I know that it is, I am in an unusual position as a Latina, uh, and I don't take that for granted. And uh, there are real things that we have done to make this a reality, to operationalize this so that it is not just something that is simply a goal, but it is, in fact, operationalized, and we are seeing results. Yeah, it was quite telling, wasn't it, at our PR Decoded conference where we had our first PR agency CEO summit, and you were the only person of color sitting around that table. So it's a really valid point that having role models for diverse staffers and diverse PR pros to look up to and to see that path upwards helps with retention and just helps with the overall culture. How do you, a lot of agencies say, well, we can't find that talent or we lose that talent to the client side. How, what are you doing that's making it work where it seems that others uh, are struggling with it? Sure. Yeah, there's no question that uh, I, I believe many in the industry, that everyone wants this. It's how, how do you, you know, what's the recipe for success? What are the steps? And, and I think for us, really, it begins with we do not believe that DEI is a responsibility of one person. And I know that this may be um, uh, a, a little uh, bit different than uh, the way that a lot of agencies approach this issue where they will hire a solitary chief diversity officer. For us, we believe that it's, you know, this is a responsibility across the agency. So we created a DI task force and includes staff members at all levels. And it's highly transparent. And what it's done is we have worked with staff at every possible level to come up with ideas on how we can operationalize a very diverse, uh, a plan that is diverse and inclusive. And part of what it really, what what's helped us in this creating this roadmap are things like, being open to non-traditional paths. Uh, this is something that, uh, that we're really proud of, that many of our staff members, they come with a richness of experiences because they come from nonprofit, they come from philanthropy, government sectors. They're not the traditional agency folks. And so what that has done is it's widened the talent pool and allowed us to be able to really uh, 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 select people from very multicultural, multilingual backgrounds. So that's one. And then I think the, the other piece to this is uh, really we have created a very warm and welcoming environment as it relates to these specific groups. So, for example, we have very active employee resource groups uh, that I'll tell you when we are doing our recruiting, people, of course, they want to know about their compensation. They want to know about 
uh, you know, where they work if, if, if they're remote. But one of the first things they ask is about diversity. And they want to know that they're in what they consider a safe and exclusive, inclusive space. And uh, I think that this has been really helpful. And what we say is diversity attracts diversity. And so we're really seeing that uh, pay quite, uh, quite well in terms of dividends for us. Yeah, now you're based in various places around the country, New York, D.C., San Francisco and Los Angeles. Do you see differences in those different markets in terms of diversity and in making it work? Or is is the culture really what matters mainly? And, and how much is the fact that you do a lot of social good work a factor in having a, a more diverse operation too? Sure. I would say so. First of all, we went from a geographic model uh, to one that really is is virtual. Uh, and we used to be in four of those four cities, as you mentioned. We had the physical offices, and now we have been uh, really intentional around uh, uh, looking for talent across the country. So we're actually in 19 cities, and we have a presence in Canada as well. And that has also allowed us to be open and in, in, in bringing in, uh, you know, an even wider pool of multicultural and, and uh, uh, staff for sure. So I think that that has definitely helped. And I would say that because of the nature of the work that we do uh, around protecting our democracy, uh, you know, fighting voter suppression, uh, uh, education reform, racial justice, it, it there's no question that it attracts people who have the same mission, that are mission-driven as we are. So I think that all of those things have really combined to be uh, very helpful in us in increasing our numbers and, and, and being representative. Yeah, so DE&I doesn't have to rely on being in person, and you can make it work in a virtual environment too. That's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I think that, you know, while certainly we can have a whole conversation about uh, of the pros and cons of, of being virtual, there's no question in our minds that one of the greatest pros of being virtual is being able to to look at staff in places that are uh, that we would not have looked at pre-pandemic. We have staff in Minnesota. We have staff in Portland. Uh, we are in Alabama. We are in the South. When we were in, in four locations, we would have never dreamed of bringing in staff in those uh, in those cities. And frankly, as a as an organization that deals with social change, we do need to be where all of the people are, and we do need to be where many of the fights uh, that our clients are are battling are. So it, it's worked out quite well for us. Yeah, and in fact, you're all getting together, I think, in New Orleans next week. And a lot of you will be meeting for the first time because uh, after the pandemic and, you know, the hiatus there, it'll be, it should be a, a fun get-together by the sounds of it. Yeah, Steve, what's really interesting is, is uh, imagine working together for nearly three years and many people have never, in fact, met each other. And uh, we know each other across the screen. But there's nothing like having that in-person interaction. So we're looking to connect. We're doing a lot of training, uh, a lot of uh, skills building. And uh, our staff in general, I think we're just really interested in being together in our 40th year. 
Yeah, that'd be great. And you mentioned your 40th year. Your founder was David Fenton, and I was lucky enough to be at his book launch last week. He's very much uh, into social activism. And I know he's not involved in the agency anymore, but he's he's got a long heritage of being involved in social activism. How does David's spirit still infuse the agency and, and, and the culture that you've built on significantly over the last couple of years? Well, well, David had a, a, a vision. He was a maverick. Uh, Forty years ago, he created a firm that really was intended to uh, fight the fights, uh, to go toe-to-toe uh, with basically using communications as, as the vehicle. And, it, and that still lives on today. I think that, that we still have that spirit of advocacy we still have that spirit of wanting to do everything that we can as a, as an unusual communications agency, because we are mission driven of really taking on the challenges uh, that, that our clients are facing and making them our own. And so that's, I think what makes us a little bit different than uh, a lot different, in fact, than, than other agencies. But I think that every day, what David was trying to do, we're still trying to do. I think for us, if you if you look at it over time, uh, where we are now is the, the the fights, of course, as it relates to the progressive world, have become more complex. There's there's no question there, uh, and so more is needed. We that's why the, the growth has been so phenomenal for us because the bigger we get, and I shouldn't say bigger, but really uh, the increase that we have as an agency allows us to do more allows us to have a greater impact. So when we were 50 strong, we, were, we could only do so much with clients. Now that we're 120 strong, there's no question, and we keep growing, there's no question that our impact can be, uh, I think, even, even greater. Yeah, it's a great success story, and I'm sure you're going to have a great time in New Orleans next week and come away from that supercharged and ready to go again and keep on with that great growth. So thanks for telling us the story of that. And um, continued good luck, and we'll get your input into some of the topics we're going to discuss now with Ewan. The Health Influencer 30 list was unveiled this week, the 2022 list. Valerie was a member of it, so congratulations, Valerie. Thank you. Yeah, well done. Tell us some of the highlights for you, Ewan, and and some of the people that were uh, on the list this year. Yeah, so you can read about all the honorees, including Valerie, as Steve mentioned, online at PR Week. But uh, I did a few of the write-ups, and I wanted to talk about a few of the people that stood out to me. Uh, One of the influencers in particular that was of notice for me was Kevin Wong, who's VP of Communications at The Trevor Project. The Trevor Project is an unbelievable organization, one that's doing some incredible work in the with and around the LGBTQ community, uh, including their national survey on youth mental health that went live this year. Uh, And for his efforts in September, the New York chapter of the PRSA gave Kevin the annual President's Award. I also worked on profiles such as Kirsten Gorsuch, who is the CCO of United Healthcare. So there's some really standout candidates there, and I liked working on all of them. And it's a a great initiative that we do that you can catch online and read about all the honorees. Yeah, it's such a big part of... PR now, Valerie, the health part of the job, isn't it? We look at some of the biggest agencies like Edelman Weber, and I, you know, 35% of their business is health. So this isn't a niche practice area anymore. It's probably the biggest part of PR, actually. So uh, have you seen that grow over your career? Because you've started out at the Rogers Group and uh, had, a, had time at MSL, and then you were at 
on the client side at the California Community Foundation, have you seen healthcare PR generally just rising in importance and, and, and size? Oh, I absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And, and I think it, it, and it really, when we think about health, I mean, there's so many aspects of it, right? There's the physical health, the yeah. mental. Uh, we at, at Fenton also strongly believe that racism is a public health crisis. So I, I think that it's an area of the industry that's only going to continue to grow in prominence and importance. Yeah, for sure. And health equity is a massive issue. And that sort of leads us into our PR Week healthcare conference and awards, which we launched this year. Um, and we're doing the second year in early May next year. And uh, Ewan, we launched that uh, this week too. So uh, yeah, just key us in on that, on the key points. Yeah. So the, the PR Week healthcare conference and awards 2023 launched yesterday alongside the health influencer list. Uh, there's an event to be held in early May 2023 in New York City. Uh, and the key date that you should have in mind is the standard entry deadline for the awards is December 21st. Yeah, and there's going to be um, 17 categories there. So uh, look out for those. Ewan, tell us about your newsmaker interview. We're staying on the healthcare tip here. It was Jennifer Smoter, who's uh, head of comms at United Health Group, a massive Fortune 5 company, which just shows the scale of the healthcare industry and, and the areas that uh, UHG is involved with. But tell us a bit about that interview. Yeah, tons of tons of interesting stuff we could impact from that conversation. Um, I wanted to bring up a couple of points first. Um, Jennifer told me about running what she described as a full-scale comms organization. You mentioned the size of United Health Group, I believe over 340,000 employees total. Uh, she talked to me a lot about internal comms, but I thought one of the things that she mentioned that was interesting is that comms didn't really have a seat at the top management table before she arrived um, and that she had to kind of work with other department leaders to identify within the company's mission goals uh, where comms could make an impact. Um, and that was able to kind of help her cultivate a seat at the table. But she talked to me, you know, about the hard part of it really is keeping a seat at the table. And she does that by demonstrating how comms adds business values, which is measured in different ways. But she talked to me particularly about how they measure it quarterly uh, against specific key performance indicators and then other uh, goals and stuff that they have for campaigns, announcements, and things of that nature. She also talked to me a lot about their health equity work and what they're doing um, in stuff in Optum and OptumRx and United Healthcare. So a lot of good stuff in there, and you can read that whole feature online today at PR Week as well. Yeah, it's always worth listening to the heads of comms at the top uh, organizations, and uh, especially a massive organization like that. Valerie, you've been in the industry a couple of decades. Do you, uh, maybe more, I don't know, but... Um, <laughs> Do you, Thank you, have Steve. You, <laughs> <laughs> I like um, that. I like that. Yes, I know. Um, well, you don't look old enough to have been in longer than that. So, um, 30 years. Have you, seen, 30 years. have you seen the status of comms rise, you know, in, internally at your clients as well? It's definitely something we've been noticing at PR Week over the past few years. Sure. I, I mean, message, 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 right? Uh, I, I think that uh, comms has to be at the table. Uh, I, I think whether we like, whether anyone wants to admit it or not, the first thing that, that when, when, whether it's a crisis or just in general, uh, when, when there's ever a situation that, that, that comes up, regardless of the subject, what are we going to say? Uh, what, what's our message? So I, I think that we've seen that more than ever before, particularly within the last decade. So I completely agree. 
Yeah, well, what are we not going to say? <laughs> so, <a lot laughs> oh, what are we not going to say? What shouldn't we say? What do what we what we what do we want to say, but we really can't say? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And we've been tracking that. That's good news for the industry. Right? I mean, I mean, it's but with that comes extra responsibility. You've got to deliver on it. The C-suite expects, and uh, so, but that that's a, that's a good pressure to have. You and the midterm elections were last night as we record this. It was a fascinating evening and uh, the red wave didn't quite materialise. There was a red sort of ripple, wasn't there? And as we yeah. speak, we don't know the full implications and results yet. But what what did you take out of it generally? Yeah, I mean, I think we all know that there's tons of ongoing sco- uh, stories to keep an eye on here as votes are still being counted in a lot of key states. Um, Broadly speaking, however, the Democrats did overperform. As you mentioned, there was no red wave, as I think a lot of people did predict, though it appears that the Republicans do seem poised to have the edge in taking the House. Uh, The Senate race, as you also mentioned, is a is a bit too close to call at this point, though it was recently reported just before we started this podcast uh, that the Georgia Senate uh, Senate race is going to a December runoff, it appears. But there's a lot of other big stories as well, such as, you know, DeSantis is winning the, the race for Florida governor by nearly 20 percent uh, over Charlie Chris, which appears to be, you know, setting him up for a potential 2024 presidential campaign. Uh, we saw Fetterman defeated Oz. And there's lots of lots of stuff that we can talk about all day. Also in California, Michigan and Vermont, for, uh, voters decided to enshrine abortion rights into the respective state constitution. So a lot of implications coming out of this one, and there'll be a lot of stuff to look on as the votes finally get counted. Yeah, Valerie, there, there was something like $17 billion spent on av- advertising around the midterms. And with the runoff, I'm sure there's plenty more going to be poured into that too, being as it's so important. What, did, what was your take on the midterms this time? Yeah, well, I think uh, Ewan covered it really well. I, I would also add that there's no question that democracy was really on the ballot this time around. Uh, people uh, voted against uh, political violence, voter intimidation. It's clear that uh, they are worried about the future of the country and giving more power to election deniers. Uh, uh, we know that also many high-profile election deniers lost big. Uh, so there's clearly a lot more work for us to do as a progressive agency as those who are invested in social change uh, as we move into 2024. But we, I think last night uh, and this morning, and as we'll see in the, in the, in the coming days, we're definitely more optimistic uh, as we move into the future. Was there anything specifically California related that, that really jumped out at you? No, I think that in uh, California, uh, you know, California, we're so unusual, yeah. right? Because uh, I think that we we can be, you know, rather left leaning. Uh, but no, I, I think that that things went in the way that that we have expected. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that California has definitely that there's there's any news. I think it's really the rest of the country that we're that we tend to look at in in terms of giving us some insights as we move into the, the future. So we're we're really looking at uh, at those states very closely. Uh, so I would say that, that that's where our eyes are trained at the moment. Yeah, it was nice to see the Democrat candidate Tim Ryan, Ryan conceding defeat to J.D. Vance and basically saying, yeah, I lost the election and I accept that and congratulations to my opponent. And really, it would be nice to have a bit more of that back on all sides, wouldn't it? And maybe try and get a, a, right. a bit more social discourse where people can exchange opinions and maybe agree to disagree without necessarily having to hate each other, right? And being at the two ends of a, of a spectrum. Have you got any thoughts on how we can do that as a society, Valerie? Because if we go on like this, it's going to be destructive, isn't it? Right. 
I'll return to civility. Boy, I, I, I sure hope that that's the direction we're headed. I, 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 I don't know that um, it remains to be seen. I think that this is something that we all hope for. Uh, I, I think time will only tell. Uh, I think that we have, of course, we've experienced and we continue to experience such great division. Uh, I, I think that, you know, any anything's possible as we see as we move into closer to closer to 2024. But it, I, I think we need to hear more messages around bringing people together, not dividing it. And I don't know that that we're hearing that quite yet. Yeah. Uh, at least, you know, for us, we're very progressive, as you know, so we're, I'm not sure that we're hearing that on, on the on the opposing side, but it, boy, it would be really nice for us to to be at a place where, you know, again, that civil discourse is there, and, and, and there, it used to be there. And, and I think that we have um, uh, sadly uh, uh, turned into a place uh, you know, into a country where we continue to, you know, to fight amongst each other. And, and I can only hope, we can only hope that we're headed into a much better direction. Yeah, let's hope so. I'm going to bring our podcast producer, Bill Fitzpatrick, in on this one, because Bill spent the last uh, few years working in the cable news sector. And last night must have been weird for you, Bill, because normally you'd have been working and behind the scenes and making stuff happen, whereas you were now, you were able to watch it as a viewer. How was that? And what were your thoughts on it, uh, on the other side of the camera, if you like? I mean, I felt like I was unemployed for a second (laughs) because I started here in February. The last seven years... I've worked every single election night in the last few years, as you guys know, has been going on into the wee hours of the morning. The first few years I did it, I was able to go out for a drink afterwards after everything was called. You go out for a drink with your staff. But these last few, yeah, being on my couch last night with a nice cold drink was <laughs> was a strange feeling. But it was really cool to watch it and know exactly what's going on behind the scenes because elections like this are just crazy. And last night with how close everything still is, I can only imagine how insane it it was on those actual cable news sets and all the radio coverage that's going on around the country as well. Yeah, a lot of moving parts, and people don't sometimes appreciate how much goes into that and all all the calls that have to be made and the calls on when to call a state or a, yeah. uh, you know, an area. So, uh, yeah, interesting to get your perspective on that. So Yeah, uh, you have yeah. to be right. You know what? One thing I will say is, I always had a good producer because I was the guy on the console, the big radio console distributing our coverage all across the country. If you have a good producer telling you we're going to we're going to Barrett at, you know, J.D. Vance headquarters, we're going here, we're going here, commercial break, you're fine. When you have a new producer, not so fun. Okay, well, we remember that. Let's hope, let's hope we keep you for a long time because <laughs> you keep us on track here. Um, but interesting to uh, get your side of that story. Sad news this week. Um, Jack Porter, who's the co-founder of Porter Novelli, uh, passed away on Monday. So our commiserations to Jack's family and to his family at Porter Novelli, another agency that you know was embedded in social justice work and, and, and social good. And, um, yeah, uh, any reflections on, on Jack's passing, Ewan? 
Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I'm fairly new to this industry, but I just wanted to say, you know, Porter uh, wanted to report that he passed away on Monday. Uh, he co-founded the agency in 1972. Um, his agency co-founder, Bill Novelli, wrote a tribute for him on Wednesday or sorry, Tuesday that I think everybody it's worth a read. Uh, one of the quotes that stood out to me was that he called him a mentor, a businessman, an entrepreneur and in the action, always on the field of play. Um, and as you just mentioned, you know, for somebody who's really embedded in social impact, I think that's an imperative and essential quality to have that you're willing to go out there, you know, be in the action on the thick of it. Cause that's where, that's where the, the work is done. So really nice to hear that and commiserations to his family and everybody at Porter Novelli. Yeah, for sure. And we were able to dig out an interview we did a decade ago, actually, with our former reporter, Lindsay Stein, who uh, was a reporter on PR Week back in the day before her fantastic career run to where she is now, uh, former editor of Campaign, our sister title. But Lindsay interviewed Jack and uh, Bill Novelli, and it was a lovely interview, and it just showed what a uh, couple of gentlemen they were and... Uh, um, yeah, our um, our thoughts with the family. Valerie, was Jack someone who you knew being, you know, maybe in a, a, a slightly uh, the social good area themselves over at Porter? I did not know Jack, but I'm always uh, sad to hear when uh, certainly our pioneers are no longer with us. So uh, my condolences certainly to his family and to the Porter family. Yeah, for sure. Uh, great agency that they founded there. And finally, it's nearly the World Cup time in a couple of weeks, the biggest global sporting event on the calendar. Uh, Frank would be having a go at me if I, he was here. But uh, and um, but it's a bit controversial this year, being in Qatar with all the issues there about the regime and the uh, some of... The, a human rights record on people building the stadiums, the sort of attitude to women in that country, attitude to LGBTQ people. But so uh, Brewdog came out with this uh, interesting campaign, didn't they, you? And tell us about it. Yeah, they did. It was a really interesting one, actually. And I should say that they did a bunch of billboards as well that went into uh, the overall campaign. But it seems like the crux of it was really that they were going to, they announced that they were going to be giving all of the uh, profits from its Lost Lager, which is a beer that they sell. They're going to be giving all of the profits from the Lost Lager sold during the World Cup, um, which is obviously being hosted in Qatar, to causes fighting human rights abuses. Um, and they launched this on Twitter and their founder also launched it on LinkedIn. They did uh, pretty quickly catch a lot of backlash on Twitter. People were particularly upset about the fact that they had pronounced themselves as an anti-sponsor of the World Cup, but then also revealed that they were going to still be showing the games in their bars. Um, and Brewdog itself was actually replying to a lot of tweets. The founder as well was also replying to a lot of tweets. Um, we reached out for comment and a Brewdog spokesperson told us that they decided to keep showing the games in the bars for two reasons, because they said that people who enjoy football or soccer rather here uh, and beer shouldn't miss out uh, on watching the World Cup just because FIFA is corrupt. Um, and they also said that the more games that they show, the more money that they can raise by selling the Lost Lager and the more money that will go to charity. So really interesting story and really interesting to see the brand just sticking to its, you know, its campaign and defending its efforts. Uh, later on in the day, their founder came out and said, you know, if Twitter backlash is what we have to face in order to raise money for human rights uh, causes and expose FIFA for being corrupt, then so be it. Yeah, Valerie, I don't know if you saw this piece of work, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's trying to um, highlight um, social issues. What, what was your take on it? And what's your take on that type of work, you know, and regimes uh, around the world where the, the human rights record's not great? Sure. So we love anything that is uh, guerrilla 
in, in, in the service of social good, right? So I think that uh, any effort, especially that's um, going to pull a curtain back uh, and and try to expose, you know, whether you call it, you know, it sounds like corruption, I, I, uh, but but in general, uh, you know, anything that 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 impacts human rights, civil rights, you know, I think we're we're quite supportive. So uh, I I think that uh, you know it's an effort that it still remains to be seen. This is something that sounds like it's. Uh, still, you know, there's still lots to, to unpack around it, but we're absolutely in support of companies that are willing to be bold. I do think from what I've heard and seen that there is a little bit of playing in both sides. So I think that that's kind of interesting. Uh, but yeah, I think it's very intriguing. We love that. Yeah. Well, they they do um, a lot of interesting campaigns like that, BrewDog. So they're, they're, they do try and uh, stir up controversy to get attention. And that's not bad, not necessarily a bad thing. I've got mixed feelings about I mean, the World Cup's my favorite sporting event ever. And I've been to the last two in Russia and in Brazil. And it's the highlight of every four years for me. But I can't, I can't think of one that I felt less excited about. I must admit this time, it, yeah. one, it's in the... Wrong time of year because it's broken up the seasons because Qatar is in summer is, you know, 140 degrees. It's going to be hot enough there as it is. They did buy the World Cup and the the former FIFA president, Sepp Blatter, actually uh, admitted that this week. You know, he was uh, found guilty of uh, various corruption related things and he, he now tells us that it was a mistake well it's a bit late now my friend but uh, so I don't know how do you feel you and you're a big soccer fan it's a tough one for me as you mentioned I'm the the timing of it is a bit weird it used to be such a thing you know when you would get to the World Cup it was already so exciting for it to be there and it was in the midst of summer and for me I was out on school so it was a nice time to be able to watch the game so it is a bit just a different change of pace to have it later um, and you know there's obviously there's been so many different controversial elements since Qatar won the World Cup, which was over a decade now. So it's kind of been all penting up or building up to this moment. Um, So I can obviously, and I share in the frustration, I can understand the frustration. I think there's an interesting question about, you know, and a lot of these people were taking the argument on Twitter with Brewdog is, are you allowed to be against the World Cup um, and against Qatar and still watch the games as well? Which brings up an interesting interesting dilemma and an interesting question. And obviously there's good arguments on both sides of it. I think it lends itself to BrewDog's response. You know, they said, if you enjoy watching football and you enjoy drinking craft beer, um, especially, I guess, at BrewDog in this circumstance, then you shouldn't not have to watch the World Cup purely because of the actors that are involved in it. And in this case, they were pointing to FIFA and Qatar. So a lot of interesting arguments on both sides. I don't, honestly, because of schedules and stuff, I think it'll be difficult to catch uh, as many games as I'd wanted to usually. Um, but you know, the world cup will obviously always have eyes on it. So I'm sure that there will still be a ton of people watching and, uh, attending as well. Yeah. There's a lot of, yeah. I mean, I look, us is playing England on black Friday, so everyone will be off that day. Um, I think it's <laughs> 2 PM Eastern time. So I think a lot of people will be watching that. I know I will be, and I'll be still watching the games, but I do feel strangely, Sad, I think, is the, the overriding feeling about the way this one has panned out. And, you know, you've already seen players getting injured and missing the competition. It's mid-season. And you've seen other players, frankly, not trying very hard to make sure they don't get injured, which is just as bad, actually, if not worse. So there's, there's all sorts of complications around this. It's a tiny country. It's something like 32 square miles. And you've got like 32 or 
countries coming into this very small area with fans from all over the world, you know, it's going to be crazy. But uh, on the other hand, the stadiums are amazing. They've got money to literally burn. So they've, they've thrown a ton of money at it. They're even paying fans to go there, aren't they? Pretend yeah. to be enthusiastic. So I don't know. It's, um, it's, it's not... It's not uh, difficult to be cynical about it, for sure. But I think once the games start, I guess we'll all start watching and then, uh, you know, hopefully we'll have a great tournament. But uh, interesting stuff. Anyway, listen, uh, Valerie, been great to chat to you and have you on the show. Thank you so much and have a great um, week in New Orleans. Sounds, uh, sounds uh, exciting. Well, thank you. I really appreciate being uh, invited to this show. It's been a lot of fun and I'll see you soon. Yeah, definitely. And uh, don't forget our PR Week Hall of Fame event. That's on the 5th of December. That's our last big set piece of the year. We'll be honoring Donna Imperato, Nigel Powell from Nike, Bill Imada, John Harris from Conagra, Melissa Wagner-Zorkin and Kimberly Good. It's going to be a great night celebrating PR and those individuals and the industry in general. Good way to round out the year. But that's all we got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week. (laughs) 